I am so excited to, uh, to sit down with uh, two, really two of my favorite people, uh, Dr. Dean Ornish and Jerry Levin. And um, for those who don't know, I think everybody knows who both of them are, but um, it was literally 30 years ago when uh, Dr. Ornish began writing about what many of us and many people around the world are just talking about today. And, um, you know, whether it's curing disease or reversing disease, or whether it's writing, I think, very prolific components of uh, reports like the Lancet report around the cancer moonshot, uh, Dr. Ornish has, I think, embodied the most important of all of the mindsets to transform health, which is he has been, from the very beginning, not just a physician committed to taking care of individuals, but he has carried the torch and is all in and is doing whatever it takes for as long as it takes to really see his moonshot through. And we're gonna talk about that this morning. And uh, Jerry Levin, who has an incredible career that goes way back to when HBO was just a little vision in the eyes of just a couple of folks back in New York in the early 70s and has created not just several industries, but has come full circle back. And now as executive chairman of Startup Health, I'm really proud that yesterday we published our first edition of Startup Health Print Magazine. Uh, and Jerry's leadership was really <laughs> guiding us the entire way. So uh, for both of you, welcome. Welcome, to, you. welcome to this breakfast. Thanks for including me. Thank you. I, I think the magazine is better than time. <laughs> <laughs> What would you know about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I actually, I, I want to start with that. And if somebody could bring me up a copy of the magazine, because I, I think that what's fascinating in this digital world, and we're going to start with you, Jerry, is this notion that, thank you, uh, is this notion that um, having spent so much time in the, in the publishing and, and the media world, uh, both old school and bridging to the new, new school with digital, you've always believed that it's not about one or the other, but it's about this combination. And so um, I'd love to open up with a, a simple question is, um, <clears throat> why do you believe it was so important for us to publish Startup Health Magazine and how important it is to shine the spotlight on this incredible moment in time? All right, so the energy here yesterday and starting today is palpable. I think everybody's getting a handle on there's a big dream being developed here. The ability to communicate that, we can do it with video, we can live stream, but there's something about the design and tactile nature of a magazine that causes people to understand what the brand is, what the meaning is. There's great power in words. And to see the words nicely designed uh, is a way of communicating something that video, we're talking, goes by very quickly. But there's something solid. Now, in the digital world, the, the magazine business is a legacy business. I love, love these words. But it's being reborn. Uh, as you can see, and I, we're very proud of this magazine because it articulates the big dream that's the essence of Startup Health in a way that is designed to capture your attention and has a certain degree of permanence. 
in this fleeting world. Excellent. And so, uh, Dr. Ornish, um, books have been your vehicle um, early on in your career to get the word beyond your patients and just you being uh, accessible one-on-one. And taking a lead off of what Jerry was just talking about, all of the different media platforms you've taken advantage of. Um, what is this moonshot? And I don't know if you put that, those words to it back in the 90s or even 80s when you were really trying to convince all of us how important it was to take care of ourselves and nutrition and what goes into our bodies. But I'd love you to elaborate, not the Dean Ornish of today, but the Dean Ornish of the 80s um, out of medical school and practicing and really what you thought at that time about going beyond the word to just having a one-on-one -on -one with a patient. Well, again, thank you for including me today um, and for Jerry, who I have great uh, love and respect for. Um, in the 80s, I, to me, awareness is always the first step in healing. And so anything that can get information out can be transformative, particularly when someone is suffering. Uh, I personally got interested in doing this when I was suicidally depressed when I was a freshman in college at uh, Rice University in Houston. And that, for me, was my doorway. Because, you know, the status quo is familiar. It sometimes changes hard. But if you're hurting, then there's like, well, that may be kind of weird, but boy, I'm hurting so bad. Let me try this weird stuff. And then when you see what a difference it can make, <clears throat> particularly because the underlying biological mechanisms that affect our health and our well-being are so much more dynamic than we had once realized. So when I went to medical school, I was learning how to do bypass surgery with Michael DeBakey, the heart surgeon. We'd cut people open, we'd bypass their clogged arteries. Of he'd course. Tell them they were cured, like, okay. yeah, and they'd go back and do all the same things that had caused the problem in the first place. You know, eat junk food, not manage stress, smoke, not exercise. And so I wondered what would happen if instead of literally or figuratively bypassing the problem, we treated the cause. And over the last 40 years, what I've learned is that it, to a much larger degree that, than I or anyone else thought at the time, the major causes for most of the chronic diseases that we suffer from are the lifestyle choices that we make each day. And so we found that with all this interest in personalized medicine, which I think is great in certain areas, like my father-in-law has pancreatic cancer, so developing a targeted immunotherapy toward that particular cell type is great. But for most diseases, we found that a whole foods plant-based diet that's both low in sugar and in fat, moderate exercise, uh, uh, yoga and meditation, and what we call psychosocial support, which is really love and intimacy, or to reduce it down even further, to eat well, move more, stress less, and love more, boom, that's it. That the more diseases we look at and the more underlying biological mechanisms we study, the more reasons we have to explain why these simple changes are so powerful, how far-reaching they can be, and uh, how quickly they can occur. But, uh, so, taking all of that, you, what you just articulated was, was probably when you said it in 1988 or 1985 or 1983 or even 1995 or 2000, it wasn't just like, oh yeah, of course. So how, how did you summon up the courage to go against just, like you said, operating and, and doing what you could do to fix someone, mm. but going against the resistance, the gravity of what is what I think conventional thinking and had just a very unique way of pushing against status quo. Well, I love what John F. Kennedy said in your moonshot video. He said, we're not doing this even though it's hard, we're doing it because it's hard. You know, and to me, things that are hard are meaningful. That's why people climb mountains, you know, it's because they're hard. And when I decided not to kill myself when I was uh, 19, I decided that uh, if I was gonna choose to live, and it was a conscious choice for me, that I needed to really understand what was real. 
And that meant I was going to try a lot of do different things. I was going to lead a pretty messy life because I, you know, the people later when I became a doctor who are on their deathbeds generally don't regret what they did. They generally regret what they didn't do. Because if you do something and it fails, then you learn something really important and you really know. And there's a lot of wisdom that comes from making mistakes and learning from them. But if you don't try, then you just wonder, you know, what might have been. So I decided I, I didn't care if I could fail because if you fail, you can learn a lot. But I, I so that's why this, you know, my parents were very upset that I took a year off between my second and third years of medical school to do the first study to see if we could reverse heart disease. And everything that I've done and my colleagues what and I have done. What year was that? That was in 1977. Um, but everything that my colleagues and I have done since then was thought impossible, uh, which is to me what makes it meaningful. So we were not only the first to show you could reverse heart disease, but you know, diabetes, early stage prostate cancer, that when you change your lifestyle, it changes your genes, turns on the good genes, turns off the bad genes, a study we did with Craig Venter. We did a study with Elizabeth Blackburn, who got the Nobel Prize for her pioneering work on telomeres, showing that your telomeres get longer, in a sense, reversing aging at a cellular level. And we just began last month, uh, George Vradenberg is here, who's helping to support our new study to see if we can actually reverse Alzheimer's disease for the first time. Because there are no good drugs either for treating it or preventing it. As our population gets older, it's really becoming much more of an issue. It runs in my family. And uh, it, it could give literally millions of people new hope and new choices. So that's why I love doing this work, because if you can empower millions of people who think that there's nothing they can do. You know, when James Watson uh, first had his genome sequence of Watson and Crick, he said, I want to know everything except the ApoE4 gene, because that increases your risk of Alzheimer's. Why would I want to know if I'm at risk if there's nothing I can do about it? But I'm quite sure that we can, we'll be able to show for the first time we can actually reverse it through these same lifestyle changes. Uh, so w when, you, when you talk about lifestyle change, um, Jerry, you have... Um, made this, you know, oftentimes part of the discussion we talk about the way you um, ate, operated, and lived um, in the 70s and 80s and 90s and how you live today and uh, how much not just nutrition and what you eat but more way you think plays a role in your life. I think this kind of moonshot thinking and mindset is such a critical part of literally the way you live. Can you share how it continues on a daily basis to play a role in your own life in terms of both how you think but also how you interact with others? Because I'm always in awe of whenever we have dinner together or with other people, how within an instant you're interacting with people in just a completely different playing field. Well, when we have dinner together, I'm concerned about your, what, your diet. <laughs> too, too, too many animal products. Uh, if, if I think back uh, on a long career, uh, I was in the storytelling business through all sorts of media. And uh, the intention or the aspiration I had at that time was to help people with information and entertainment. Uh, and it was uh, satisfying, but the one thing I missed was that each person has a story. Each person has a unique reason for who they are and what they're doing. And it eventually occurred to me, particularly with my wife, that if I paid attention to those stories, I would find how remarkable everyone is and how your ability to 
have compassion and understand that we're all one uh, and to get some peace in this world. So from that, uh, I made the transition to Startup Health because the idea of a moonshot or change the world, you know, there's so many cliches, but this is real. This is definitely in the DNA of the company. I'm old enough to have heard JFK talk about going to the moon. The words are still ringing in my ears, not because it was as easy, but because it is hard. And several years later, I had the pleasure of meeting Ted Sorison, who wrote those words for Kennedy. And the idea that there's a field of dreams, there's an impossible dream, is both the essence of what an entrepreneur is, but it's also the thing that's most needed in the world right now, is to change the, the inequality and the problem where there's so many people who not only don't have nutrition, but they don't have any access to healthcare. And while I love every moonshot we have, for me, spiritually, morally, the notion that we're gonna give every person on the planet access to healthcare at no cost, that gets everybody's attention. But why you know, does a, a child who's a refugee and has no home, has none of the basics, no access to health care. We, we need to cut across boundaries. And the last thing I would say is that a lot of people pay lip service to, lip service to what's global, local and global. But if you look at everyone's stories and you want to change the world in a meaningful way, then there are no boundaries. There are no countries. They're just people. And somehow I believe we'll get past the political malaise that we're in or morass and come to this. Come to this to give people internal peace and external peace in the world. Can I build on that a little bit? Yeah. Please. You know, there's an underlying assumption for all health, you know, whether it's entrepreneurial or bureaucratic, that people want to live longer. But if you'd asked me when I was 19 if I wanted to live longer, I'd say, no, I really don't. And I think a lot of people, the real epidemic in our culture isn't just heart disease or diabetes or cancer. It's loneliness and depression and isolation. And many people, so I, I've gotten in the habit of asking people, why do you want to live longer? And that sense of meaning that comes from that really reflects all these different choices. So if I'm gonna eat a healthier diet. Is that like deprivation or is that, can I imbue those choices with meaning because, yeah, I wanna live longer so I can watch my kids grow up, I can dance at their wedding, I can write a book, I can, whatever it is that's meaningful for you or me or whomever. Uh, you know, people tend to think of my work as mainly diet, but it's just one of the four aspects. And one of them is what we call psychosocial support, which is really love and intimacy. And study after study have shown that people who are lonely and depressed are three to ten times more likely to get sick and die prematurely from pretty much all causes when compared to those who have a sense of love and connection and community. And so our support groups are ways of kind of re-helping people have that experience of what it's like to be connected at a very deep level. 
you know, with, you know, with Facebook and, and the social media, it's, it's ways of connecting literally a billion and a half people, but in ways that often leave people feeling more isolated because, you know, you see everyone else's what seems like their perfect life and their Facebook profile and their bio sketch. It's like, well, why isn't mine like that? Whereas in a support group, or 50 years ago, if you had an extended family or a neighborhood with two or three generations of people, people knew you. They didn't just know your successes, they knew where you messed up. And you knew that they know, and they know that you know that they know. There's something really primal about being able to talk with a group of people in a support group or in a family or whatever, and say, gosh, you know, I may look like the perfect dad, but you know, I'm, I'm having problems with my kids. And, and someone else can say, gosh, you know, I'm having problems too. And suddenly you're not so isolated and alone. And all, what I'm continually impressed by is how powerful those simple changes are and how, you know, if we don't work at that level, information, we're drowning in information in our culture. Uh, information is not enough. If it were, nobody would smoke. Um, you know, you can look up anything on Google instantly. The question is, how can we get wisdom and how can we get love and connection and compassion? I mean, the very first study I did, we had 10 men and women in Houston in a hotel, all of whom had heart disease. One of them uh, was a, a 75-year-old dentist who hated gay people, another guy was gay, and they started yelling at each other on the very, very first day. And uh, one got chest pain, took a nitro, the other got chest pain, took a Demerol, slammed the door, slammed the door. I thought, wow, <laughs> this is gonna be the end of my very short research career. Uh, they're both gonna have heart attacks and die right in front of me. So I talked to them, I said, look, you're giving the power to give you chest pain and maybe even a heart attack and die to the person you hate the most. And so what you're talking about with compassion is being freeing. You know, the more compassionate we become, the more, and the more altruistic we become, the more it helps us. So it gets us out of these debates, am I, you know, looking out for number one, or am I gonna be a martyr? So like, the most selfish thing you can do is to be loving and caring and giving, because ultimately that's what frees us from our suffering. You know, it's... It you know, it, it, it's interesting, as you talked about uh, the connection and the love, it, it, it for me, right away, click back to really this ecosystem and community that has been surrounding this movement to transform health and really look at this as a very unique moment in time where the next 25 years will be radically different than the last 25. Um, for each of you, what, what, when you look out and think about what we as society can look forward to and be hopeful about, as it relates to our health, as it relates to achieving these health moonshots, what today gives you both the most hope and belief and confidence that our future is going to be radically better than our past? Well, the, the answer resides in startup health, and that's building a community, a permanent community where people come together in a way that uh, never took place in my business history. Uh, I come from a time when it was male-oriented, highly competitive, survival of the fittest. And now, I think what we're about to embark on, just as a side note, when I watched the news this morning, Alabama won in overtime. Uh, Jeff Bezos is the richest person on the earth, 1.05 billion. But the thing that caught my attention is the little speculation that Oprah may run for president in 2020. Now, what underlies that is the, the, the way we're moving now, the feminine movement, the 
turning over a lot of our institutions to that kind of sensibility gives me great confidence, as well as the millennial group who don't see divisions or disparate backgrounds. They, they're community-oriented. So I'm hopeful that the combination of the two the rising millennial generation across the globe and the power of the feminine movement to take over from the male movement that has failed society. I appreciate your question, and I think that we are at a unique point in history. I think there's a, a convergence of forces that finally make what we've been talking about the right idea at the right time. And by that I mean that the limitations of high-tech medicine are becoming increasingly clear in terms of drugs and surgery. Uh, a number of randomized trials have shown that in stable patients, stents and angioplasties really don't work. They don't prevent heart attacks or prolong life or even reduce angina. That getting your blood sugar down, you know, half the population today is diabetic or pre-diabetic. Getting your blood sugar down with drugs doesn't prevent the horrible complications and premature death. Getting it down with lifestyle, you can prevent virtually all of them. In the case of men with prostate cancer, which is the most common cancer in men, uh, a study came out in the New England Journal last year that after 10 years in a randomized trial, men who did nothing lived as long as those who had surgery or radiation, even though the surgery and radiation often uh, maim guys in the most personal ways because you can't have sex and you're wearing diapers for no benefit at huge economic costs. But if the choice is between doing nothing and something, most guys, if they know they have cancer, want to do something. So we present a third alternative. We did a randomized controlled trial with the chair of urology at UCSF, Peter Carroll, and the chair at, at Sloan Kettering at the time, uh, Bill Fair, and we found these same lifestyle changes could slow, stop, and even reverse the progression of men with early stage prostate cancer. So through my nonprofit institute, the Preventive Medicine Research Institute, back in the 90s, we trained 53 hospitals and clinics around the country in this program. We got bigger changes in lifestyle, better clinical outcomes, bigger cost savings, better adherence, and yet a number of the sites closed down because we didn't have the reimbursement. And so the, the lesson, painful lesson of the time was that it doesn't matter how good it's clinically, if it's not reimbursable, it's not sustainable. So that set me on a 16-year journey with Medicare to get Medicare coverage. Hardest thing I've ever done. We had Bill Clinton, who was president, and Newt Gingrich, which he was Speaker of the House, and all kinds of people. And, but we were able to do that. And when you change reimbursement, you change medical practice and even medical education. And so we've, we've been partnering with a company called ShareCare, and we're training hospitals and clinics and physician groups and really creating a new <coughs> paradigm of healthcare which, again, we're showing the same kind of benefits. But what makes it so meaningful for me is that the stress management isn't just about managing stress, although it can help you do that. It's about quieting down your mind and body to experience more of an inner sense of peace and joy and well-being, and to realize that's really our natural state. You know, that um, we think we're, the whole advertising industry teaches us if we just get more money, more power, more beauty, more accomplishment, then we'll be happy. And then when, until you get it, you're not happy. If someone else gets it, then you're really not happy. And even if you get it, it's seductive in the moment. It's like, ah, I got it. It's great. You know, I'm the CEO of Time Warner or whatever it is. I got in a medical school or whatever it happens to be. But then it's like, well, now what? You know, it's never enough or so what? Big deal. It doesn't really provide me that lasting meaning. And so what we do when, when someone is sick, they're open to new ideas. When they're suffering, they're open to new ideas. And so we say at the end of a meditation or a yoga class, that the, the yoga didn't bring you that sense of peace, that it was already there, but it simply quieted down your mind so we weren't disturbing that. And that may sound like a, 
you know, a semantic splitting of hairs, but it's really all the difference in the world because if it's really, if I have that already, if my natural state is generally to be healthy and peaceful, and if I'm not feeling that way, then the question becomes not how can I get what I don't have, but what am I doing that's disturbing my own innate health? And I can do something about that, so it's profoundly empowering. So let's talk about the convergence of these two answers, because I was actually very interested in hearing what both of you said uh, about being hopeful today. You, gave, you came at it from very different places. Jerry, I'd love, I'd love to have you connect this back to this op-ed you wrote a, uh, a few weeks ago uh, that was published about uh, female leadership and, and, and the very institutions that Dean talks about and the leadership of those organizations and perhaps how this blends together so that we're, we're holistically bringing this, these different things today together and not having separate conversations. Well. Uh, first of all, there's a statistic tucked in the revolution that uh, Dean Ornish has, uh, has made happen. Uh, if everybody was on a plant-based diet, we could take half the feedstock that's feeding animals for our consumption and feed the entire world. That's right. No one need go hungry today. Say it again. Nobody need go hungry today. We have enough resources if, you know, it takes 10 to 15 times more resources to make a pound of meat-based food than plant-based food. And so if, if more people moved in that direction, besides more global warming is caused by livestock consumption and all forms of transportation combined. So for all those reasons. All right. So uh, I happen to write a piece uh, dedicated to my wife, but it comes from my soul. Uh, I, th I think it's time for people, leaders, uh, politicians uh, to be authentic, to be vulnerable, to be able to elicit the stories that motivate people. And that's a feminine culture. So either men have to adopt that or we just turn over the keys to women. <laughs> I mean, have you, have you ever noticed that it's the mother who's multitasking, the father's watching NFL football? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm very encouraged by, by that revolution. But I, I also believe that you're witnessing in startup health and the kind of uh, speakers that have been here that there's a new age dawning. It's not just about health care per se. Uh, it's about uh, traversing boundaries, guidelines, and doing things that totally seem impossible. Uh, and the reason I focus on startup health is that it represents a new kind of company uh, where you know, let, let me back up just a second. I'm sorry, Steve, it takes so long. Uh, the human mind works on metaphors or similes. Something is like something else. So we have a Moonshot Academy that is totally unique because these transformers are put in a three-year program and then they become part of a permanent community and army. So it's not an incubator, it's not an accelerator, it's something we've never seen. There's a, 
a venture fund, but it has nothing to do with what a venture may be. It's taking the knowledge of what's now 200 companies and putting them into a strategic vehicle to enhance their capacity to scale. And at the same time, the leadership represents what I would call values leadership, where management is a humanist art. This is the new form of corporation that, that doesn't and hasn't existed certainly in large companies, but even in a lot of the wonderful tech development and a lot of the venture fund access to capital. But this is different. So keep your eye on it because it's going to explode in growth. Can I build on that? Absolutely, please. So, yeah, I get so inspired listening to you, Jerry. Um, you know, technology is a form of power and it can be used to harm or to heal. You know, a knife can be used to surgery to heal someone or it can kill someone. And so to the degree that we can use technology to bring us together in ways that are truly authentic, it can be healing. Even the word healing comes from the root to make whole. You know, yoga comes from the Sanskrit to yoke, to unite, union. These are actually very old ideas that we're bringing together. And I think in my limited understanding, the, the, the way that healing can be deepest is something that you said, Jerry, which is that we're all one. That on one level, we're separate. You know, you're you and I'm me. On another level, we're part of something larger that connects us. Whatever name you give to that, even to give it a name is to limit what's essentially a limitless or ineffable experience. And you can experience that through secular, through religious ways. Uh, and it's the opposite of what we're often seeing in Washington now with the other. You know, once you define someone as being fundamentally different and only different from you, those Mexican rapists, those terrorist Muslims, those whatever, then you can do bad things to them because they're not you, they're different. But all spiritual traditions, once you get past the things that people fight over and kill each other over, you know, at its root, are that there's that double vision, that on one level we're separate, another level we're part of something larger. And, the, and to me, that's the roots of compassion, when you see that it's you in another form. And so, to me, when we can help people use the suffering, not only the physical suffering of illness, but the social suffering that we're seeing in our, in our country and throughout the world, as a doorway for doing things differently and transformation, and using technology. I mean, when we have our support groups, after they finish their their 72 hours that Medicare and other insurance companies pay for, they use Zoom, a technology, a video conferencing, once a week from five to six on Tuesdays or whenever, they all continue that to meet. It continues that process. And so whenever I'm looking at any kind of new technology or any kind of new device or new approach, to me the question is, is this really bringing us closer together or is it pushing us farther apart? And to the degree it's bringing us together, it's healing and it's reducing suffering. And to the degree it forms a sense of difference, then it leads to, to suffering and often to chronic disease. You know, an, an anthem for this new world would, would probably be John Lennon's Imagine. And, and I say that because not only are the words powerful, but it's a prototype of what digital technology did to the music business, where I can now get the videos with John and Yoko Ono. I, I get it free. It's available uh, at my will and my timing. So it's a metaphor, again, for what digital technology has done to all of our uh, previous businesses. So as, uh, first of all, I, these are so many, I was actually thinking about, as each of you were talking, how much I could go deeper into what, <laughs> what both of you mentioned. But 
As a, a last word for each of you, uh, starting with you, Dean, uh, last word to leave us with today. I mean, you've got a room full of entrepreneurs working to achieve health moonshots. You've got a room full of investors and partners and people that believe in supporting those entrepreneurs in achieving health moonshots. Um, what would you leave us with today if you could say one last inspiring kind of shout out to this incredible <laughs> group of people that have come together? Well, let me say something self-serving first, which is not so <laughs> self-serving, which is we're doing this study to reverse Alzheimer's. We've raised four of the five million we need to do that. If any of you would find it meaningful to get involved, let me know. But on a deeper level, I would say that um, trust your intuition. You know, we all have a voice that speaks, that's a, the still small voice within, whatever name you give to it. It's the one that wakes you up at three in the morning and says, hey, listen up, pay attention, you know? And we can access that voice very clearly. Everything I've done in my research career over 40 years, people thought was impossible. And it's because that little voice said, no, this can work. And so if you're looking at things to invest in, if you're looking at things to do yourself, trust that voice. Uh, it, it's what Steve Jobs uh, briefly referred to in the, in the video that you showed. Uh, it, it's, 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 you can access it very directly. And I find when I listen to it, uh, I'm glad that I did. And it's usually in the context of doing something that's going to make a difference in the world as well. Uh. I would say don't do th things traditionally. Yes, when you start a business and you're an entrepreneur, uh, how are you going to monetize? How are you going to scale? Go with your passion. There's a reason that you're doing it. And when you're looking for money, don't just take the money. See what that person's story is so that they have the passion for what you're all about. That's the extra dimension that's going to make this work and make it change the world in a meaningful way, not just as rhetoric or a cliche. Excellent. Well, I, um, I, I want to thank each of you. Dean, uh, you've become such a great friend, not just to Startup Health, but to me, and uh, always a cell phone call away. And I can't uh, thank you enough for rolling out the red carpet oh, every time thank you, Mike, th those pleasure. calls come in. And I know that everybody that I ever interact with that has either seen you on any of our videos, seen you at any of our events, or knows you, only speaks the most incredible oh, words thank about you. you. So thank you for this thank you. incredible embodiment. Of, of what a health transformer really is because your lifelong commitment to not just treating patients one by one, but trying to touch millions of people's lives inspires every entrepreneur here and every entrepreneur that Thank watches you every day. Thank you. And Jerry, you asked us a question uh, that led us to creation, creating Startup Health um, and that continues to embody what we believe in every day, which is if you were to wave a magic wand and look out 25 years, um, how would you reimagine health and what would need to happen? And that led to us literally creating the, the vision and the mission for what we are doing and executing on, which is very much led by that question that you so eloquently asked me that, me, Unity and I, that, that, that fateful day back in 2010, and have always continued to push us to not only believe, but to know without a doubt this is gonna happen. So thank you for not just asking that question, but for your continued support, friendship, and love every single day. Thank you very much. Thank you.